then uh, follow that man right there. And uh, he's, he's a really good teacher. So that's something that we're very, very appreciative for. All right. Thank you guys for leading in worship. And uh, thank you for Greg and Becky and the sound and slides. It was very wonderful. Thank you. I want to preach today on the topic, if the dead are not raised. And in one sense, it's going to follow up on Easter last week. Before we do that, though, I just want to put before you, this isn't a typo. So starting next week, we will be in 1 John. So we're going to spend nine weeks going verse by verse through the first epistle of John. I have never preached through 1 John before. I'm, I'm really excited about it because John is probably my favorite author of the scripture. There, there is a simplicity in John's words for a profundity. Is that the right way to say that? Profundity in, a, in his themes and his understanding that I, I just can't get over. I'm still learning from uh, even after all these years. So starting next week, we're going to be spending nine weeks going verse by verse through the first epistle of John. I say that uh, because I want to encourage you to go home and read it. I want to encourage you to read it. It's only five chapters. You could read it several times this week, and that would really give you a background to kind of further uh, understand, but also appreciate what's going on there more in that epistle. So that would be a good, good foundation and background for our understanding if you wanted to read that through a couple times. There is also a video by the Bible Project in overview of 1 John. It's 12 minutes long, uh, which is amazing. I would encourage you very much to read that. Uh, very helpful in understanding the background, what the, the situation that John is addressing as he writes that epistle. All right, but for today, we are going to be here <clears throat> if the dead are not raised. And this is a follow-up a little bit to, to last Easter's sermon or last week's sermon on the Resurrection Sunday because my concern that I want to address is that many of us, all of us probably would say we believe in the resurrection, but are we living a life consistent with that? I want to begin by reciting an incredibly evocative poem by Robert Frost called The Road Not Taken. He writes, Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler, long I stood and looked down one as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and perhaps having the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for the passing there, had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, in leaves no steps had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet, knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two rows diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. That poem's evocative because of the picture of two roads or paths diverging in the woods. Uh, that's an apt metaphor for our lives. The roads we take lead us somewhere. And a different choice of the crossroads will lead to a different life, different destinations. One we could wonder about, but never know. There is before us a crossroad. 
and it will make all the difference which path we take. We will choose one road or the other, that's our choice, but the destinations of each are foreordained. The crossroad before us is this, to choose to, choose to fully believe in the resurrection from the dead or not. Or to put it another way, the choice is to walk on the path of belief in the resurrection or the path of unbelief. Now, I put it that way because, as I said, I think most of us here would say that we believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe that Christ rose from the dead and that because of that, we also will live from the dead. However, I'm not, I'm not asking if we intellectually agree with that. What I'm asking is, are we walking on the path of living in light of that truth or are we not? Now, the Apostle Paul spends a very long and very deep chapter covering this same question. Do we live in the belief in the resurrection of the dead? And that chapter is the 15th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. So he begins by asking in verse 12, But if it is preached that Christ is raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless or vain, and so is your faith, by the way. And he goes on there a little bit. It's interesting, you know, sometimes we have this idealized picture of the New Testament church, because uh, we see in Book of Acts these wonderful things, and then we get to the epistles and we realize, oh man, they were just as messed up as we were. Sometimes in different ways, but just as messed up. Apparently, one of the churches in the first century that Paul had founded and, and he viewed as his, his a spiritual child, in a sense, there was a significant faction preaching that there was no resurrection from the dead. And so he writes a very long chapter to confront that. Um, and so he, he goes on and talks about this. He ends up in verse 19. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. Now, why? Because he wants to show the, through the rest of this chapter that because of the resurrection of the dead, there are certain things that are true and, and untrue. And if there are not, then there are certain things that are true and consistent. We should live our life. And now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, go through it. Like I said, it's 58 verses. It's really long. I want to focus on one snippet of it because I really think this is the heart of where he's going. He says in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, or tomorrow we die. If the dead are not raised. So that's the phrase, and that's the idea I want to think about with you. I want you to imagine those two paths in the woods, but this time they each have a sign. One side says, I will live again. I will be resurrected. And the other side said, this life is all that we have. What happens if we choose to walk on each path? Well, let's talk about the destination of this path, the one Paul sits before us, that there is no resurrection of the dead. First, if there is no resurrection of the dead, this road leads to the belief and the idea, whether explicit or implicit, just something we have in our mind, that our physical death means our ultimate extinction, right? Shakespeare puts in the mouth of one of the characters in the play Macbeth, Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Signifying nothing. What a haunting phrase. 
And yet here's the thing. If you don't live again, if there is no resurrection of the dead, that phrase must be exactly right. All our actions, all our achievements mean nothing for they die with us. Oh, they may live on in the memories of our children, grandchildren, probably not much beyond that, right? How much do you know or celebrate about your great-grandparents? No. And even in the best-case scenario of our actions affecting other people in our culture and our world, we're told that if God's not in the picture, our world itself, our universe, has an expiration date. In other words, if there is no God, it all signifies nothing, all this acting and strutting upon the stage, because one day, not only will the actors be gone, the audience and the theater as well, it will all pass away like a melting snowflake. But, but here's the thing. Let's go a little deeper. If there is no resurrection from the dead, not only are our actions insignificant and meaningless, but so also also are our sufferings. If there's no resurrection from the dead, if, if this life ends in a period and not a coma or a colon, then two facts about our sufferings are indisputably true. Number one, they're very real and then they hurt. And number two, they're entirely pointless. They serve no eternal purpose and they can never be redeemed. They may help us, I suppose, become a better actor if we respond to them the right way with growth. But again, if everything comes down, if the curtain itself and the theater is destroyed, is that really so important? And, and we can really go beyond this too. It's not just the suffering and evil that we experience personally. The suffering of the world uh, and the evil of the world are also very real, but very pointless. Denying God or denying the resurrection does not solve the problem of evil. It makes it a hundred times worse. For there's no hope of redemption then, and no justice for evildoers. I have to think of Joseph Stalin. This was a man who was responsible, either directly or indirectly, for the deaths of some 30 million people over the course of his life. And yet, Joseph Stalin lived a long, half healthy, happy life filled with power and applause and stability. At age 74, he had a stroke, and he died a few days later. And all the land was filled with the glory, and he had state funeral statues erected everywhere. Mao Tung in China was his equivalent. So he, he probably was responsible for the t deaths of 40 million people. Maybe some, some uh, historians say 60. Wow. And yet he also lived prosperously and well until the age of 80, 82. And he died a few days after having a heart attack. Both men had lavish state funerals. Their, their statues died, dotted the land. Now listen, here's where I'm going with this. If there is no resurrection, if this life is all there is, if this is about gaining more health and, and status and power and wealth, then these two men are the epitome of human success, and they should be our models and our exemplars. They never face justice or judgment for their vicious crimes against humanity, and they never will if the dead are not raised. So these are the facts. This is the logical destination of the road through this sign. So the, the Apostle Paul here in this verse, he cuts through all the claptrap. All right, if that's, if that's where this road leads, then how should I live if my mind is on this road? And here's what he tells us. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This is actually a quote from the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah is putting words in the mouth of the evildoers. This is their life. 
You know, they don't believe that there is something beyond, that there, there is a God, and this is what they do. And Paul says, if there is no resurrection, that's exactly what we should do. You should eat and drink. You should get all the pleasure and all the treasure that you can in this life. Or as the old beer commercials used to say, uh, you only go around once in life, grab all the gusto you can. If the dead are not raised, if your death means your ultimate distinction, if there is no one and no thing beyond the grave, then the best advice, the advice most consistent with that is this, eat and drink. Because tomorrow it's all over, so you better enjoy it completely and eternally over. Let's talk then about the other road. Where does this road lead? The road that says, I will be resurrected. Put that in your mind. This life is not the end. I will be resurrected. Where does it lead to? Where, what kind of life does it lead to if we choose to fully walk on this road? Well, if this is true, then Macbeth, the character Macbeth was wrong. Life is not a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. It is full of sound and fury, right? Especially if you have young kids in the house or, or you're involved in certain messy ministries or whatever. Uh, Life very often is full of sound and fury, but these are significant because like a sign, they point beyond themselves. You ever seen a, a dog and you're trying to point something out to them and, and so you point at something and they come over and look at your hand and then sniff your hand because they don't get the idea that, that you're, you're trying to point to something beyond yourself. What's important here is not the hand, not the sign, but what's signified. So there are things in this life that are, that are like that. Macbeth was wrong. There are significant things. Now, Paul's favorite analogy of, of this life is not drawn from the theater, however. It's, it's drawn from the word of world of biology, that this life is a seed. This life is a seed. And that's, uh, I didn't put it out here, verse 35, he asks, how, someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And Paul responds, how foolish. What you sow, what you plant, does not come to life unless it dies. And when you sow, you don't plant the body that will be, but just a seed. What do you do if you want to grow an oak tree? Do you, do you go out and find an oak tree someplace in the forest that's just the kind and size and shape that you want, and then cut that down, dig a really big hole in your yard, and bury the whole thing? Uh, no, not unless you're an idiot, right? Um, all you do is you plant an acorn, and then you have to wait. So what he's saying is this. Your resurrection does not mean that you will have the same body that you have right now, or even worse, the body of your day, the day of your death, thankfully, right? You're going to have a different kind of body, just like the oak is different than the acorn. Your life will not be the same. The way you interact, because this universe and this world and the way that we interact with it will be entirely different. It's not just that we, you know, that this is act one and the resurrection is act two. No, he doesn't use that kind of analogy. It's, it's more this life is the seed and that life is the plant that grows. This life is the acorn. That life is the oak. There is a continuity between our body now and our resurrection body, but it's a continuity of causation and not likeness. Now, if that's so, then here's where I'm going. The things of this life, including our body, but the things we do in this body, are eternally significant. 
They are a sign. They're real, but they also point beyond themselves. Jesus and Paul both speak. There's another way that they also speak of investing in the life to come, investing in heaven, um, putting forward by our actions wealth there or reward or riches there. Uh, Again, they both speak that way, but more often they speak agriculturally or biologically, seeds, first fruits, reapers, harvest, winnowing. That's the idea. We plant something now, and only later do we see the harvest of that. We spent four weeks studying the book of Ruth just recently, right? And that's what we saw. The Ruth's loving actions of self-sacrificial love and loyalty to Naomi were a seed planted into the soil of the future, and that because God was involved, that created a wondrous thing, both for her personally, but more for the nation of Israel. She didn't see it at the time, and we won't either. Why? Because the time between sowing and harvesting is too long for us to see, but not for God. God who creates the mighty oak in the shell of the acorn is the same God overseeing our lives. The same God who resurrected Jesus will resurrect us. Now, let's go on here a little bit. If the dead are indeed raised, then truth and justice win. Evil is real, yes, but it's not pointless and it's not permanent. Stalin and Mao and all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, by the grace of Jesus Christ, some of us, those of us who are in Christ, will survive that judgment. Our pain is not pointless. It's never pointless. It's not unnoticed. It's not unredeemed. Because we know that if we walk on this path, we're walking in the steps of Jesus, who also suffered greatly. But God used that greatest suffering for the greatest good, the salvation of our souls, creation of a new humanity restored with God. So we know that our suffering is not as great as Jesus's, but also will create good because we're on the same road. Yes, it's painful, but no, it's not pointless. So, this is what this road means. Does Paul give any advice to us on how to live on this road? If this is, that's the destination, and that's the meaning of the road, how do we live on it? So that's the advice he gave to those walking on this road. Here's what he tells us. He concludes this whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, with this verse. And I put it in two translations because the second one, I think, is a paraphrase, but it kind of brings out the power of this. He tells us this. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So two things. If we are choosing to really believe that I will live again, he says there are two things to shape your life around. First of those is this. Stand firm. Don't let yourself be moved. Don't give up and don't give in. That's the idea behind that first part. It's often used of buildings uh, that are firm and standing still instead of being collapsed by time or by storm. Uh, some, of you, some of us are old enough to remember when Hurricane Andrew kind of devastated a large swath of Florida and it you know, just went through and just tore up all kinds of, of places to various degrees. One area, one large housing subdivision had especially high claims much more than usual. And that's because of two things. Number one, the houses were very expensive. And number two, the builders of the houses had skimped on the foundation and the supporting materials 
so they could spend more money on the outward facade. They went great, but they didn't stand up to the storm as well as houses that cost one-third as much. Paul's saying, don't be that kind of house. Build your life. Build the foundation and support of your life on this idea that this life here is not the end. Because if this life is all there is, I'm going to give up. Because there's not a payoff for the choices I make towards godliness. There sometimes is, but it's not worth it. That's why Paul says, if it's only in this life, the way of faith in Christ Jesus, we are to be, of all people, most pitied. Paul says, I've got so much skin in the game that if I'm wrong about this, I'm the biggest loser in the world. And I wonder if we could say the same, though. And that kind of brings to the next point. Stand firm. Build your life upon this. Don't give up. Don't give in. Let this solidify you. But also, because of that, abound in your work for the Lord. Because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Labor implies something you, you do. Because uh, something you do that at least sometimes you find burdensome or sacrificial. But you do it because there's a payoff. That's what labor is. Most people don't get up in the morning and go to work simply because they feel like it that morning because they want to. Hopefully there's some things you like about your job if you're working right now, but probably not everything. And you probably wouldn't do it if you didn't get a paycheck, right? There is a labor and then there's a reward. Now that's not the only kind of labor. Uh, parents who are doing their best to raise their children in godliness in a rather ungodly culture sometimes, that's a, that's a labor. Or someone, um, a student goes to class and they give of themselves to, to learn and to, and to work. They're not getting a paycheck for that, but they do that because there's a, there's a payment later of a different kind. So we're, we're familiar with this idea. There's labor that we do only because there is a reward ahead of us. Paul says, don't forget, whatever you do for the work of the Lord, will be abundantly paid. You can't outgive God. And anything you do for God, even if not one other person in the church or in your family or your neighborhood or, or your work or school, even if not one other person notices or appreciates it, it doesn't escape the eyes of God. And he's the one. He's the one that at the end of our life will stand before. So, If this is true, if, the, if you and I will face this resurrection, then we can abound and give ourselves to the work of the Lord. You see, it's easier, it's easier to just go through the motions. It's easier to live as a Christian not really doing much uh, towards the work of the Lord, right? It's easier not to get involved. It's easier not to, to give than to sacrifice financially. It's easier to view church as meeting my needs instead of a place to serve others. It's easier to not teach, not to serve, not to give the time, to not share the gospel with my classmates or my coworkers or my neighbors. It's easier to not love my, my neighbors and my community and my family in a sacrificial way. I get it. It's easier not to care. And if you are not resurrected, that's exactly what you should do. You should choose the easy way. That's what Paul says. That if the dead are raised, if you are raised, Paul says, let your work in the Lord abound, abound. That word means to do more than 
our guilt or a sense of obligation tells us that we should. It speaks of a free, joyful, unrestrained giving that looks crazy in the eyes of the world, maybe. It's, it's, it's a lavishness to it. By the way, you, you, there's a few other places you see that word. But you know the one I love? Ephesians 1.8 uses the exact same word to say that God has lavished his grace upon us. Just a verb form. God didn't hold anything back in his grace to you. He lavished it on you. He poured it out abundantly. And that's the same word he says we should abundantly give to the work of the Lord. And that's, of course, the question for us, right? What are we doing? What am I doing right now in my life that if there is no resurrection of the dead, I'm a loser? What am I doing right now that if I, if I die and that's all there is, I've made a terribly bad investment of my time and my resources, my energy. What am I doing that I would have to agree with Paul that I've done it in vain and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm to be pitied because I wasted my life if there is no resurrection. But on the other hand, maybe a better way of asking that, what can I do right now to abundantly, lavishly give to the work of the Lord? I can't serve God directly. He's not here before me. I serve God by serving other people within the church or the family or the community. And I want to do that lavishly. I want to end with uh, just this picture and the story. There is a woman in John chapter 12. Her name is Mary. She's got a sister, Martha. You might have heard of her. In John chapter 11, their brother, Lazarus, who had died, was resurrected by Jesus Christ. In chapter 12, there's a meal thrown at a certain man's house. Not their house. Even though Martha was there serving, Mary had a different role. There are men around the table. They're reclining, as they would often do in a, in a, at a Jewish special meal. It says Mary comes in, and she's got something in her hands. She's got a bottle or a vial of pure nard. Now, what is nard? Nard was a very aromatic, wonderful oil, kind of like a cinnamon oil, but it was from a, the, the plant nard, which only grew in, a, in India. and only grew in the roots. So you can imagine how expensive this was if you lived in Israel. In fact, uh, she brought this in, and it was 11 ounces in, a, in a, some sort of vial like this, 11 ounces. And we're told in that story that that 11 ounces of nard was worth a year's wages. Think about how much money you make in a year. That's how much she held in her hand. It was very aromatic, and I expect People thought she would come in and maybe dab a little, put it upon the, you know, his, his head or something. But no, she took, she broke it. Because she knew she had no more need of that jar because she was going to pour out the whole thing. And that's what she did. She poured it out on his head, and then she poured it out on his feet. And then she, very unusual for a woman of her time, she undid her, her, uh, 
her scarf and let her tresses fall down and, and wiped it in with her very hair. And the disciples, especially Judas, or at least he's the one that gives voice, he is aghast at the waste. This could have been sold for a year's wages. And I think the others must have wondered too. I mean, every ounce she poured out was thousands of dollars worth. And Jesus said, you know what? Leave her alone. She has done this for the day of my death. Now, I don't think Mary knew that. If you read later on, she's just as surprised as everyone else at the, re at the resurrection. Maybe she knew he was going to die, but I, I don't get that impression. But Jesus understood a deeper significance than she had. I think she was motivated by the love that she had and the wonder that she had that this Jesus would raise her brother from the dead and that he had that kind of power. And maybe it would affect her too in some way. And she took, and I don't know how Mary had something worth a year's wages that she could offer. Maybe she sold a bunch of stuff. I don't know. For whatever reason, she came in and she broke that bottle and she poured the whole thing out lavishly, abundantly on Jesus Christ. And it says the fragrance of that filled the room. Well, no, duh. I mean, half an ounce would have filled the room with that fragrance. But he, he, he mentions that because what happens when someone does that? Creates a beautiful thing that affects other people. So the question is, do we want to take this road? Okay, I believe in the resurrection, but I'm not really going to live that way. Or do we say, I'm all in. I believe this, and I'm going to act with this, like this with my life. I'm going to let this, this idea of the resurrection form me and give me strength to endure. And I'm going to let it be the way that I choose to give abundantly, lavishly, to the work of the Lord as, as he directs me.